What's going on guys? Adam Comero here giving another form of the uh, cold opens I've been doing for the end of season episodes. I didn't want to record one spot and just paste it in because that kind of loses the hu the human element of uh, and the overall perspective of what I'm trying to get across when uh, requesting that if you do enjoy the pod, subscribe, rate, and most importantly give a good review on iTunes. That's something I've been doing this for six, seven, maybe eight, I, I don't, I've lost track of the years, but I, this is the first year I've actually asked to do that because of the fact that the pod is up in the air for next year, so it matters, and analytics from the iTunes uh, reviews, that's a major, what they use for the promotion tool. So, um, I haven't checked uh, DukeBasketballCorner at gmail.com yet, I haven't checked the messages yet. Because I did want to finish this season's episodes, I will tell you what, I will give it until mid-May, May 15th exactly, to email me if you are interested in uh, being a co-host next year. Not a guest, definitely not a guest, That some may be confused by that, um, an actual co-host, someone who'd be eager and motivated to record throughout next season. And uh, even start out with something in the summertime to get the chemistry going. I mean, a bonus would be someone who'd be able to take the organizer, interviewer kind of role at times and even edit episodes for audio and occasional content because that has become a major grind after doing it for years on my own, whether or not I record with anyone for that episode or not. So uh, hit me up if, if you're interested. Tell me about yourself what you bring to the table, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do it by May 15th. I mean, a big thing It's like an example uh, is uh, I posted something uh, like you don't have to be a stats nerd to understand basic stats, even if it's not like basic box score. If I say, uh, like I put Kyrie Irving, um, his, the improvement Kyrie Irving's made offensively in his career is passes out of the pick and roll. So I posted uh, his stats on that, and um, I did get a response that people, it's too advanced for people, and uh, they wouldn't know how to understand that, and so I was curious, They, like all you would need is to know what a pick and roll is, points per possession, if you're confused about that, then the context would be in the rankings I, I put there, so I wasn't quite sure, so I actually did a poll, do you know what a pick and roll is, and everyone seemed to. Um, based on at least the poll results, if people were being honest, and I asked, to get, do you know how to interpret points per possession on passes out of the pick and roll, and came back yes, so I don't know. I, the, the basic thing is, when I, if I saw that, I'd be interested in interacting, having a discussion. Like I like thinking about stuff like that, and, and that's what I'm looking for, someone who wants to talk about something, not to win a, a conversation, not to embrace debate, Debates are fine. That ain't what I do um, on, on, on this pod. I, I mean, humorously at times, sure, whatever. But uh, I'm, I'm just looking for a good conversation. Someone who's interested in discussing subjects like that and knows what they're talking about um, in a fun way. So, all right, let's do this. Uh, by May 15th, DukeBasketballCornerGmail.com. Alrighty, so I've done the ACC season review pod, a Michigan State, uh, the final game analysis pod, though that obviously was uh, more than just Michigan State. 
Um, and uh, so here's the next. A chronological Duke 2018-19 season in review episode. Next will be a program deep dive, and while I was initially thinking the finale would be a player review app um, on the roster, I'm not so sure that's going to happen. I won't say it definitely isn't, but I, I wouldn't say it's guaranteed. So I was joined by uh, Brant Wilkerson New of the Greensboro News and Record on the uh, chronological season review and the deep dive, which was nice of him because those are definitely not episodes I could do alone, so I really appreciate his help. That was, uh, that was quite the marathon we did. Each one's about an hour and a half. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's the whole season, though. It's a lot of opinions. One thing I wish uh, a subject, probably more of the deep dive than the season in review, uh, is uh, just the Jordan Tucker aspect because I don't judge players um, for whatever decisions they make. They can do what they want, whatever fits what they feel they uh, need at the time. Um, but it is interesting because I'm not sure when, if ever, there's been a player who transferred and in the next season, the role they could have provided was a, a role that Duke desperately needed. So I'm not going to say he should have been more patient. I'm not going to say it, it would me, me, me like many, many people do. I don't agree with any of that. He did what he felt uh, was good for him. He was a 43% shooter from deep in uh, March for Butler. So that's definitely something Duke could have used. Defense wasn't his specialty, but uh, he's learning. He's learning, and uh, I think he could have carved out a role. So that's something I wish I had discussed, but I didn't at the time. But, uh, yeah, so there's my opinion. I do think he would have had at least some sort of uh, spot in the rotation, if not a major one. All right, so uh, here we go. Here is the... uh, the, what is it, the third of the uh, season finales with at least one more, possibly two. And uh, a few things to keep in mind uh, while you're listening to uh, kind of me and Brant break down the season. Uh, first, this was recorded 10 days ago, so I've been too busy to have the chance to really sit down and listen back since it's really a marathon and I want to make sure it's legit. So there has been some stuff that's changed. If you hear us mentioning players who are... We were waiting to hear if they've gone pro or stay or whatever. And Duke, they've obviously picked up some recruits, lost Boogie Ellis, so on, so on. Well, you're listening to Brent and I roll through the schedule. Keep in mind uh, a few stats. Uh, I mean, besides the uh, the free throw percentage, which or not the free throw percentage, just the lay free throw misses, which I'm sure. Um, you know if you've listened to uh, this pod at all during the season, but uh, keep in mind, 18.5% forced turnover percentage was the national average. But 17.2% forced turnover percentage, that was the magic number for Duke's win-loss record. Duke was 22-0 in the season, forcing over 17.2% turnovers, and 10-6 and when forcing 17.2% or lower. And, nine, and they were 9-6 and against top 200 teams, if you're going to take out Army. Um, and out of those nine wins, five were by one or two points. And another against Auburn was by six. Duke was not much more than slightly above average when they weren't forcing a bunch of turnovers. That's bottom line. In the 14 games post-Louisville, when basically they hadn't forced any turnovers 
against Louisville and, until the uh, full-out blitz when Louisville looked like they'd never seen a, uh, a zone press. And then Duke turned them over like eight straight times to the end. But, uh, so they weren't really turning Louisville over much there before that uh, the Magic comeback. But in the 14 games post-Louisville, Duke was below the national average, again, of 18.5% in forced turnovers in uh, 12 of the 14 games. The only ones they weren't were Miami and the Syracuse ACC quarterfinal um, when uh, Hughes basically turned it over nine times in the first 11 and a half minutes while Zion was busy taking over the world. So, again, below the national average in 12 of the last 14 games. And, uh, yeah, Zion was there. This isn't. This has nothing to do with, like, to make the excuse of, oh, a lot happened when Zion wasn't there. A lot of those occurred. The last six games were all below 18.5%. The last six games Duke played this season. So, it's, uh... Good, good luck trying to uh, make that uh, a valid argument. The bottom line is, hey, you'll hear me say it, but Duke was not a good half-court team. They needed to uh, turn the ball over, turn other teams over to win. And, uh, yeah, the two things were forced turnover percentage and the free throw misses late in close games, which they somehow, like I said, out of, the, out of the nine wins, when Duke was 9-6, and six, forcing 17.2% or below, five were by one or two points, and another against Auburn was by six. So they were, uh, yeah, it was, they were ahead of the, they were basically just getting very fortunate, if that's the word you want to use. The 2018-2019 uh, chronological season in review episode with Grant Wilkerson New. I appreciate you listening. Thanks so much and enjoy. What's going on guys? Adam Comero here with the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast and the year is over. I recorded an ACC kind of season in review with Lauren Brownlow, who was kind enough to join me and talk about some players who all of a sudden now might not be back on the teams that we discussed. Uh, there's been some uh, early entrants or possibilities, kind of like what I was describing, how with NFL contracts, they're signed, but you don't know what it's actually going to be until you find out about the guaranteed money. That's what we're that's what we're dealing with right now with like Kyle Guy and uh, players like that who have declared but they haven't signed with an agent. So that is all interesting stuff. And Kerry Blackshear has uh, he's going to enter the transfer portal as a very sought after grad transfer. But for for this podcast, it is going to be Duke and nothing but Duke. For the 2018-19 season, this is more than the Michigan State, the last game, which I recorded a separate pod for that. And it's going to be an overall viewpoint of the season. We're going to do two parts. Part one, going down kind of thoughts in season and how we felt at the time. And two, just kind of an overall viewpoint of the Duke season and just the program in general. So I have uh, Brant Wilkerson new. He was kind enough to join me. Uh, during the tournament right after Duke beat UCF. He is kind enough to now nerd out with me 
on Duke. He writes for and covers Duke and the Triangle and the ACC for the Greensboro News and Record. So thank you for uh, being a uh, fellow <laughs> nerd with me tonight, Brant. And yeah, sure. I'm really I, excited I to just get to into following it. Brownlow on here. So let's do it. <laughs> um, yeah, she was great. So for this season. We'll obviously get into the specifics and the context and everything, but real quickly, do you have any just overlying kind of general thoughts as to what to take away from either the season overall or how it ended or just um, how I mean, contextual be moving season forward? Is obviously, 340 programs in America would love to have had the season that Duke just had, but Duke is Duke, and with the, you know, you have the national player in the year of the lineup, you have two All-Americans in the lineup. I think you got to expect that you're at least going to get to the final four. So they come up a little bit short on that, but otherwise a great season. It was really interesting to watch how kind of the, the team evolved in some ways and didn't evolve in other ways from, you know, the first game when we saw them play Kentucky and thought that they were maybe the best team ever. And, um, you know, never really hit that gear again, almost, it seems like. So it, it was just kind of interesting to watch, but it was obviously a pleasure to watch Zion. It's something that we're never going to see again. So I think one of the cool things was that we realized that early on and tried to really savor the fact that we were watching something special. So that was that was pretty incredible to, to have been a part of. Okay, well, let's just start with part one, going down uh, not – we won't talk too much about each game, but just general um, thoughts on the season as it went forward. Basically, I've split it up almost into how did I put it? I might have put it in four or five parts. Here we go. Okay, I have Kentucky through Gonzaga. That's games one through six. Indiana through Louisville, uh, seven through twenty-four. Uh, Syracuse, the second game, the second matchup against Syracuse through the second matchup against UNC. The uh, 2018 and the third 2019 UNC, chronological season in, in review the episode with Brent Wilkerson New. State. I so appreciate you listening. Thanks so much and enjoy. But I might have even had it five because they did go to Canada. And there were some – it was interesting. I, I will admit I'm a sucker. I paid for the ESPN Plus app, and I don't even think I've used it since uh, – since watching Duke on that um, during the summer, but hey, whatever. All right, so they went to Canada, and my thoughts from Canada, obviously Trey Jones and Cam Reddish did not play there, but there were still um, some interesting takeaways from the Canada trip. So what I saw was, number one, R.J. Barrett, trust. Like, I, I predicted at that point that R.J. Barrett was going to be kind of the BFF of Coach K immediately. He had that calming presence, almost uh, the same demeanor as uh, Tyus Jones at a time where it's intense, it's competitive, but you never see him ever get flustered no matter what's going on. A kind of a really professional attitude and demeanor. I'm not comparing their games, just in terms of... The, the composure they show no matter what's going on. Um, so I, I said that, plus you have to remind yourself that Kay's always had that experienced guy who he leans on to be the alpha with the ball in their hands. And if he doesn't, it's kind of, it's always an adventure. So RJ, while not having experience, 
he became that guy. He became uh, the Grayson Allen the year before. And the year before that, they didn't quite have that player. And you saw it rotate all kinds of players at point guard or kind of whoever initiated the offense. I mean, you even saw Matt Jones do it at times, who really that wasn't that didn't fit his game. But just because Coach K, he has such trust in his experienced guys who've been through the wars with him. Obviously, Coach K has a military background that he he wants to just let guys who have proven themselves be able to continue on. I mean, that's how it used to be. You you the players would kind of coach the next the up and coming guys. The the juniors would coach the sophomores, sophomores, freshmen, and so on. So RJ, I just it was obvious right from the start he was going to be that guy. His role was that alpha role. Zion immediately much more than a basketball player. I'll admit, I didn't really watch uh, much recruit. I mean, his mixtapes were just him dunking all the time. And for me, that didn't show enough of him as a basketball player. But right away, I found out he is not just a dunker. So, I mean, it was just so impressive right away. The end of the Canada trip, the he did an interview with Jay Billis, where Billis asked him, what was the most important thing that you took away, that you're taking away from this trip? And Zion said, defensive communication. We have to talk. The only way this team is going to uh, succeed to the highest capability is talking on defense nonstop. If we don't talk, we will not, we will not win. We have to do that. Um, other things I saw was uh, Jordan Goldwire. He was the only one who really applied a consistent on-ball pressure. Marquise Bolden, there was a huge overreaction with him because he kind of he kind of sleeped his, his his way through that trip, and many just don't care about the context of last year with him, where he didn't get a lot of playing time because hey, guess what? He was behind Bagley and Carter, so when he did get on the court, he was fantastic. I mean, the win shares, all the stats prove it, and plus playing in a in a zone defense, which doesn't fit his game. I thought he was fantastic last year, but based on uh, three or whatever exhibition games in Canada, I mean, the uh, the lashing out at Bolden was from people calling him a bust because we take a lot of us uh, take recruiting rankings a lot uh, way too seriously. So uh, Bolden, I really wasn't worried about him, but uh, there was a lot of worry um, from many in the uh, fan base and many bloggers and many media. It, w- it wasn't just fans overreacting. A lot of people. Um, the other, uh, Jack White, he showed a lot of uh, promise being able to step up in a role as kind of the glue guy. And I, I was really excited about his ability to possibly provide Duke with the chance to almost play a Golden State Warriors death lineup with him at the four and Zion at the five. So that's basically what I took away from Canada. I mean, they were, they were mismatches. So there's only so much and there's only – I mean – it's kind of a, a fine line between you can't really project with that kind of competition, but you can kind of see uh, little things and hope they can kind of come to fruition. So w- did you watch any of those Canada games? If so, yeah, what, was, did, uh, what did pretty, you take away from that? Pretty well on the same page with you on all that. I, I watched them because, hey, if you got basketball in August, you're going to watch basketball in August. So um, exactly the same thing as far as RJ Barrett is that you could tell very early on that Mike Krzyzewski wanted him to be – the the a1 alpha dog of the group and i mean he looked every part of the number one pick in the nba draft and i think what we saw with zion is in that context was people were still a little bit weary wary uh wh- whichever way uh he, 
of that was going to go because I think, you know, throughout high school, the, the one thing was, is this game going to translate against bigger, stronger athletes? And obviously he went up to Canada and put on a show and dominated and got a million Insta- Instagram followers for the Duke MVB account. But and that was against uh, guys that were not the, the quality of athletes that he was going to say see in the ACC. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that my big takeaway from all of that, uh, you know, aside from everything that you said was, Marquise Bolden, um, he had been, he really has been injured for the entire time he's been in Durham. And it's like one thing after another. He looks like he's about to turn the corner and then something else happens. It's just really bad luck for the kid because he's played really well on the few, the few little stretches he's gotten himself healthy. Like he was starting to look really good this season right before he hurt himself there against Carolina. And he played okay in the NCAA tournament, but yet again, that was another injury um and the only thing that kind of concerned me about his performance there was that he didn't really seem to be looking for a shot it wasn't that he wasn't scoring it's just that he didn't even take any shots so um and i don't that didn't really matter in the end because i mean that wasn't going to be his role on this team so i mean i i I, when i saw them play in canada i I left with the feeling that hey this is going to be a Final Four quality team. Zion's probably a little better than I thought he was. R.J. Barrett is at every good as bit as he's advertised, and I'm curious to see how this is all going to work out when they plug Trey Jones and Cam Reddish into the lineup. Yeah, and uh, with R.J., one thing I noticed immediately, I mean, there's so many things to like about him, but immediately I could tell his dribble was a little loose, so he had to watch out about that when when uh, kind of slicing into the lane. And immediately, which... I will definitely talk to you much more about this. He struggled to finish with his right. And that's something I knew immediately teams were going to scout. Zion, same thing. It turns out they were so good that they were able to somehow overcome that the mass majority of the season. But uh, we will talk about that more, kind of the overall um, aspect of just it's it's fascinating to me how many talented, high high recruits they really struggle to finish with both hands, and that turns out to be such an issue when they get to college and can't just get wherever they want on the court. So that's that, that was interesting. I did think it did affect him a lot of the time in terms of being able to get to the hoop when teams would overplay him. Uh, Kentucky, as the season started, I mean, there were two uh, other exhibition games kind of. I don't even remember what happened there. There really wasn't much obviously that I take away from that. I don't even remember what happened. It was like Ryerson or something, if that wasn't even Canada still. But um, yeah, Kentucky, I just, I didn't take away nearly what anyone else did, even during it when I didn't have any idea what others were saying. I was just like, Kentucky's not ready for this. Like, they're just overwhelmed. And you saw what Cam could do in Cam Reddish in terms of when he came out and immediately hit some shots, you saw... Kentucky just make crazy adjustments and that allowed Duke to take advantage with the rest of their players. I mean, but you also saw RJ came out right away and hit a three. Zion came out and hit a three. Nobody thought Zion could hit from outside. So they, they, they shocked. And I think Kentucky might've over adjusted, but at the same time, the, uh, the, the rotations by Cal Perry, I don't know. There was just some odd things going on. I don't think Kentucky was ready. I think the way Duke came out, it was just almost a perfect storm. So while others were talking about could Duke beat whatever NBA team they were saying, I didn't see it that way. And it's not to be a contrarian. I just that's not how I viewed it. Um, following that, uh, let's see. After Kentucky, 
Army transition defense was terrible, like really bad. Um, but they were just more talented. Army actually, they were impressive. I mean, that obviously Coach K graduated from there, from West Point. So they put on, they, they put a heck of a fight, a fight in there. Duke didn't defend the three really well, but mostly it was just Duke. They seemed very happy to just run up and down the court. So uh, yeah, the defense needed to be um, kind of prioritized. Eastern Michigan, that's where we saw this team stinks against zone. They pre- they pressed the hell out of Eastern Michigan and got a lot of turnovers, quick buckets. When Eastern Michigan played zone, Duke couldn't do anything, and Cam Reddish was sick or something, so he sat the second half. They won, but it was really, really ugly. So uh, then um, the Maui Invitational, it was San Diego State. Trey Jones was much more involved. I love seeing that on offense because he really wasn't initiating anything in the half court. It was all R.J. Bear, so it was great seeing Trey more involved there. Uh, Auburn, I thought Auburn really, they chucked, and that, that isn't the way to play against Duke because it allowed Duke to get out in transition. But Auburn was figuring themselves out at the time, trying to get their big man, Austin Wiley, into uh, the team. He really ended up not having the impact many predicted, and they ended up just being a running team, which probably would have been a lot more entertaining against Duke. But that game was the Marquise Bolden game where he kind of, I wouldn't say silenced the critics, but he was amazing. I mean, more than the stats with like seven blocks. He was just, he was a big man playing like a big man. Gonzaga, Gonzaga was just a complete choke job. I mean, the Gonzaga would screen, then rescreen Duke just to the point where they, I mean, it was just silly. It was beautiful basketball. They were dominating Duke in every possible way. And then all of a sudden, it was just a choke job. Three of, fi- <laughs> three of 15 field goals in the last 10 minutes inside of 638. They, uh, they attempted seven free throws, nine of the last 10. So it wasn't even like Duke was getting free throws all the time. I mean, they just, they almost, they, they basically peed themselves. That, that's, that's all there is to it. They missed all the free throws. They missed countless opportunities close to the rim. But that's kind of like Kentucky. You can see there is an intimidation factor with Duke. And I don't know, because Gonzaga, they had a lot of experience on that team. I, I'll be honest. Gonzaga's if there's one game in the NCAA tournament, which shocks me way more than any other, it's Texas Tech beating Gonzaga. Because, I mean, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, Texas Tech was just... They were just swiping at the ball, and Gonzaga, they weren't being strong with it, and it just led to so many steals. I mean, Gonzaga, they were my pick to win it. I'm still, that shocked me. But more to the point of this game, Duke, I would say they were lucky or fortunate to have even a chance, and that was the game where R.J. Barrett, Duke did have multiple opportunities on their uh, final possessions, and Barrett kept going ISO and wasn't able to convert. And then you got all the people calling him selfish, blah, 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 get to Zion. And he actually, you found out he sent a text message to teammates apologizing. And it was great to kind of hear the responses of like, don't ever apologize. That's your role. That's what you do. We believe in you. And Coach K had his back. So right away you could tell there was, I mean, it could have been, who knows, cliche, whatever. But there was a sort of closeness to this team and a support system that, K, that Coach K would point out throughout the year. So even though Duke did lose that game to Gonzaga, and it's one of their worst efficiencies on defense in the in the entire Ken Palm era, which would have been much worse if Gonzaga hadn't completely stopped scoring in the last 10 minutes. But uh, I think there was a lot to learn from that game. Again, transition defense was bad. But that that was that's really part one. For Duke, in my opinion, from Kentucky through the end of the Maui Invitational. So, 
Any any thoughts? Yeah, that that the Gonzaga game was kind of a you know a, a landmark in the season for them, and it, it was after I think it it was it after Indiana maybe. No, that, Indiana um, was after. Yeah, so that that was the game coming after that 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 Mike Krzyzewski came out and unprompted kind of defended R.J. Barrett based on what happened at Gonzaga and said, guys, uh, we we want him taking those shots and kind of implored Duke fans as a whole to, to lay off uh, R.J. Barrett for what happened in Maui. So um, I thought it was interesting at the time, the way that Duke kind of, um, they did make an adjustment from the Auburn game because I remember they chucked up a bunch of threes and you could kind of see that they, I mean, we all knew they were going to be not a very good shooting team. But they really toned it down against Gonzaga and attempted 13 three-pointers after taking 25 against Auburn. So, you know, Gonzaga, to me, that was just a really good basketball game. Uh, team, an inexperienced team going against a really veteran offensive team that knows exactly what it wants to do. And they've got one of the best offensive minds in basketball. And they just kind of they worked over the younger guys a little bit until Duke's just raw ability took over. And Gonzaga made some mistakes and gave them an opportunity. But... Um, yeah, I think the the big takeaway there was that you kind of saw that RJ th- this was who RJ Barrett was going to be, and he wasn't going to be deterred from he could miss ten shots, he could miss ten in a row, but he's going to take that next shot, and sometimes he's going to make it, sometimes he's not. But that that's kind of the, one of the first times that you really saw that Kobe Bryant mentality in his game. Yeah, I mean, a, a couple other things from that Gonzaga game. There was an adjustment which. Before the season started, I, I said that uh, I already can't even remember if I if I have said this in the pod already. But it, the season was going to rely on two major factors. Number one, Coach K being fluid in his adjustments, not just uh, kind of initiating a system for the team, not just kind of game to game, but actually within game, being adaptable and really helping out the individuals to play to their skill sets, which will in turn help out the team. So I really want to see consistent adjustments within each game, not just game to game, not what we've seen too often in the past of really there's going to be like one or two slight adjustments within the season, but there's not really a lot in game that can change how things are going. And we did see more of that at times with uh, Duke this year. And it started with uh, Zion in the post more. Gonzaga, they, they really use Zion in the post because before that, it was a lot of ISO. And Zion, he's still not the type you can just give the ball to all the time to say, hey, go get a bucket. But he did improve that. Towards the end of the year, he was uh, a lot more um, aggressive in that manner. He was, The most impressive thing about him prior to that was his ability to pick his spots and be smart. His intelligence is just something which I don't think anybody – really had the sort of idea of how smart his basketball IQ was um, before he came to Duke, and just really, really impressive. The other thing, the other takeaway from Gonzaga was Coach K actually going with Jack White and um, Javin Delorier down the stretch, and Cam Reddish, he was sitting on the bench from, let's see out here, I have um, Cam, I, I can't, can't find out where I have it right now, something like, with 10 minutes to like 30 seconds left, he was on the bench. So that was an interesting kind of factor to see how that might or possibly not affect him mentally because hey, these are 18-year-old kids. He's used to being the guy. So that, that, was, that was interesting to see Coach K choosing uh, Cam on the bench 
over Cam in the game where Cam, I mean, I think that was right after it was like a two minute span where he had two threes and turned the ball over three times. It was just such an adventure with him immediately that I think Kay with Gonzaga getting tired legs, it seemed. I think he just wanted more bulk in there and kind of knowing, uh, playing a more safe lineup. But uh, that that was interesting right there. All right, so yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna say I, I do recall that you know the day after Marquise Bolden plays probably his best game at Duke, he's basically a non-factor in that game because of the way that Gonzaga is using its screens and and spreading him out uh, up, up top. So that was kind of yeah, like like you were saying, uh, there were the adjustments were pretty clear that there could be times where a guy could go playing 20 minutes one night to getting no minutes the next night. So it was interesting to see the the fluidity of the of the adjustments. Yeah, that's that's actually a very valid point, which I should have mentioned. The I think Kay should have gone to Javin a little earlier. I think many felt the same, but I also think that really they weren't doing as much hedging as you saw at the end of the year. No matter what happened against Michigan State. I would say Bolden and Javin, their hedging on the high screens was fantastic and just completely in another world compared to where it was against Gonzaga. But uh, Bolden was caught on uh, some big shooting outside, and that got uh, that got kind of ugly in the first half. But, um, yeah, so the next game, Duke played Indiana, ACC Big Ten, pretty much pre- tons of pressure right away and kind of similar to Kentucky where it was just overwhelming. And I can't, I can't remember the name of the Indiana point guard freshman. He just he looked like a deer in the headlights. So Duke just annihilated them right away. Stetson, Stetson played zone. So Cam was, you see Cam was vital before it got out of hand, or you saw Cam was vital. He uh, hit threes, but that was kind of stat-skewing mismatch. And then after seeing that Duke would start off so strong and kind of overwhelm teams, there was an intimidation factor. Then you saw kind of the opposite, where it almost seemed, I don't want to say sleepwalk, but they played some first halves, which were kind of surprising against teams that you would think they would just overwhelm right away, talent-wise. Like Hartford, they were up nine at the half, and uh, the first half they won by nine, the second half they won by 21, so they were plus 12 there. Yale, they were up by nine at the half. In the second half, uh, they won that by 24, so there's a plus... Uh, 15 um, in the points from first half to second half. Uh, let's see, Princeton, they were up 13. Then they won the second half by 38. So <laughs> there's a plus 25. And, and even Texas Tech. Texas Tech was up by one at the half, and Duke won the second half by 12. So that was a plus 13 there. So you could see right away, Duke was their freshman. Everything is being experienced for the first time. And with a guy like Zion who can just punish dudes, they were becoming right away a second-half team that would just, they will really kind of dig in in the second half after maybe, I don't, I don't know if it's feeling a feeling-out process or what, but there were some slow starts, and another thing was too many threes in the first half. Those threes became <laughs> free throws. So that was great to see because obviously with this team, Cam was immediately my X factor for the season just because I heard, hey, he can shoot. And I was like, okay, well, then he's automatically the X factor because I don't know who else is going to be able to shoot uh, besides Alex O'Connell, who I hoped could gain Kay's trust with uh, defense and smart decisions on offense. But that kind of went up and down. So I would say that it was great to see in the second half. It, what A lot of the reason why they were so much better in the second half is because they were so much more aggressive. 
and that's something I think was good for them to take forward. Texas Tech, that's the game where really I felt that Jack White couldn't have been more important to that team. And I feel, man, if, if there had just not been that Syracuse game, obviously life happens, but Jack White was unbelievable in Texas Tech. Trey gets a, a ton of credit and a lot of it deserved for his defense that game, forced a lot of uh, turnovers, a lot of steals. I do think Texas Tech, they didn't have, um, what's his name, the guy who, Moretti, they didn't have him really in the role he would take. So there was, uh, I think, Matt Mooney who had struggled uh, against Duke uh, the year before, like South Dakota State or something. And Trey yep. really punished him. Trey was amazing. But basically, Texas Tech, nonstop in the second half, they just isolated. Um, they had Culver going against Jack White, and Duke trusted Jack White to take him, and he shut him down time after time after time. Then you had Duke. They couldn't make any threes. It was an ugly game. Both teams were turning it over nonstop. And Jack White, he finally uh, kind of broke the seal. He had three, then he had another. And then Cam hit kind of, I guess you could say, the game-clinching three um, later on. But I think Jack White was the difference maker right there. And at the same time, when, when everyone was celebrating Trey, saying, hey, best defensive player in the nation, I wanted to see him versus kind of more skilled point guards because not many want to think about it, but um, Gonzaga with Perkins, Perkins, he he played really well against Trey, and uh, that was ugly at times. Obviously, early game, Trey improved from there, but still, I wanted to kind of give it a little time before I was going to kind of crown Trey in that way, but that isn't taking away any credit. I thought he played really well, but Jack White, I mean, he was just so big, and what last thing about Texas Tech, I think for the, the kind of the, the people who just go by stats, I think it can get a little bit too much sometimes because we talk about pace. And the pace of Duke Texas Tech was 81. You know, you want to know why? Because they just kept throwing it out of bounds over and over. All, all <laughs> it is is possessions. So I think that can be misleading sometimes in terms of just looking at pace. You got to apply the eye test as well, watching the game, because an 81 does not represent how horrific that game was at times. But Duke pulled it out. Big win at Madison Square Garden. Um, so I'd say that's, that was the last game before the new year. Um, I know I kind of went into a lot. So that was Indiana, then a bunch of uh, stat skewing games where they stepped up in the second half and then Texas Tech. So what were your thoughts there? Yeah, I think that was around the time. uh, It might've been around that week that, uh, coach K said that Jack White has been the unsung hero of our team, which that, that was, yeah, that was clear that that was indeed the case and you know i thought jack white was playing well enough that he could have become a starter at that point in the year because just what what he was giving them uh from the three-point line and being able to defend uh, a guy on the wing or maybe a really big guard um was really important and that's exactly what they needed because i think one of the questions that i've kind of developed over the course of uh the the past few years about duke and this is something we can get into more later is um, you know, maybe maybe three three primary scorers is too many. Oftentimes, so um, my question was kind of developing like, the, is is Cam Reddish kind of necessary in this lineup at this point? Would they do better with having a guy that's a role player that's really not going to look to shoot unless he's kind of wide open out there and, and does a little bit more as far as rebounding and defending? Yeah, and I think at that time Cam was still. 
Actually, I have it here until um, there was two more games after Texas Tech. One was against uh, with the ACC season starting against Clemson and then Wake Forest. Out of the first 14 games, there was only three games where he played double-digit minutes in both the first half and the second half. And that's kind of wild to think about when you have a guy that hyped coming into the season. And it wasn't just mismatches where he would sit for, for rest. I mean, there was various things, where whether it, he might have sat for uh, an injury, or as I said before, with Eastern Michigan, he was sick. One reason or another, foul trouble. But either way, this wasn't happening with RJ and, and Zion. So I think we were still kind of waiting to see what Cam could do. And I think he was really struggling with his confidence at that time, but he had a great support system. And as he uh, kind of broke through, you could say, um, in a game later, I think you also saw his defense pick up because no matter what, even as he struggled throughout the season, his defense was always super aggressive and had a big impact on Duke being able to force a lot of live ball turnovers, which in turn allowed them to run because Duke was never a good half-court offensive team. They were awful at shooting the entire season besides a few outliers. And Cam, while, yes, he struggled, I think if it was as easy as Duke just needs a role-player shooter, I think we would have seen more Alex O'Connell. But a trust is a huge thing with Kay. And I don't know what was going on behind the scenes, but obviously Kay despite O'Connell proving he can knock down shots, there was just too many reasons why another player was a more viable option, uh, I would say. Um, so I would say uh, Clemson, it was a slow grinder, Clemson's pace, until Elijah Thomas picked up his second foul in the first half. Duke immediately changed the pace, never gave up momentum, just kind of proved how quickly Duke could just take all the momentum away from a team and just really step on the gas. Uh, Wake Forest. Wake was actually really good in the first half. Their students weren't back from break, but they, there was there was a kind of odd atmosphere. But they mixed it up well with zone and matchup zone at times to confuse Duke. As usual, Duke too many threes. Then basically Wake came out, and it's the only time I can remember pretty much ever saying this. I didn't know what was going on. I felt they just basically quit. And that's a big thing to say, and I'm very careful to, to when I do say that, which is never but it, it was the weirdest thing ever because after playing so well, after competing so hard, they looked like they weren't even trying in the second half. So that was really odd. The biggest takeaway from Wake was with Cam struggling, at the end of the first half, Trey made a big play. Um, he uh, penetrated under the basket. His time was running out in the first half and kicked back out to uh, Cam at the top of the key, splashed the three as time ran out in the first half. And from there on, the next game is when many people think he broke through against Florida State. That three against Wake Forest, I said at the time, was as big as any. And with Wake playing uh, some zone in that game and matchup, I thought Duke, I was really excited with them showing more of an ability to play better against zone because they hadn't played the zone. I mean, and the, again, each thing is the first experience they'll get. Um, let's see here. Florida State, Florida State was... Uh, Interesting, because that was their first big test. Back in December, I remember tweeting that, like, the real season starts against Florida State. And that's no disrespect to any other team. But, I mean, that was going to be the test. And Zion got poked in the eye in the first half, and he was out for the second. So there was a lot of pressure on them. And Florida State uses the uh, the roller or the big man to slip the screen way more than Duke had faced. And might have been more than Duke would face up until Michigan State. And uh, especially with uh, Chris Kamaji, I mean, he was just huge. 
<laughs> I mean, both figuratively and literally. So uh, Duke struggled on the pick and roll. Cam especially. Cam had played basically all zone in high school. So he was still learning uh, rotations and switches. Barrett, he was a victim at times of not rotating properly. Again, it's just freshmen learning how to play team defense. So Florida State did a great job. Bolden, you saw Florida State really isolate him and try to get try to get um, a playmaker on him. He did a fantastic job, in my opinion. Bolden's never going to be the most impressive-looking guy, but I, I thought he really moves, moved his feet well and proved. That was a, kind of, in my opinion, when he earned Coach K's trust. Uh, Trey missed the front end of a one-on-one with like three minutes to go. And RJ missed a free throw down one, which FSU fumbled out of bounds, leading to Cam's game winner, which that was the kind of the shot where everyone thought everything had changed. So uh, one more game, then I'll, I'll get I'll get your opinion from everyone overreacting to now Duke is unbeatable. They just pulled the, pulled off impossible. They didn't have Zion. Everything was great. They they shot really well from three. RJ and Cam were both fantastic. And Cam played more minutes. And from that on, Cam actually got consistent minutes in both halves. Then it came to uh, Syracuse, the next game, losing in OT. Cam, after the biggest game, wasn't even available for the next one, which Coach K, I still find weird. Kind of the same thing as the NCAA tournament where he didn't find out until like right before, which it's not like college football where there's like a million players. I'm not quite sure how you don't know about that, but I don't know what I'm talking about. So that's just me being... Whatever, but um, conspiracy theory. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even say conspiracy theory. It's just odd to me. Um, <laughs> and Trey, after starting uh, out really kind of whatever that term is, like a house on fire or something like that, uh, creating all kinds of uh, turnovers, and Duke was pressing. He got injured and it looked really bad at first. He was able to come back a couple games later, but I think that's when the the, the crazy overreaction came to him, where basically if he had missed the rest of the season. People would have considered him like a god, and like he would have forced 25 turnovers every game. He was great, but I think it's just it, it was just tough to deal with losing your two your two best perimeter defenders in Cam and Trey, and against a zone with Cam that that was big. And then you have guys playing career high minutes. You have everyone from like Bolden, Alex O'Connell played like huge minutes. Jack White played like all. And that was, uh, I mean, their legs were just gone. Basically, Q's packed in the zone, and RJ, his his legs were done. And it's just something you can't explain unless you've done it with uh, playing a huge road game, getting a huge win at Florida State, and then coming back. And again, I mean, I think RJ played all every minute versus Florida State. Coming back, and his legs just died. He was shooting 50% a couple minutes in the second half. He just couldn't hit anything, and he couldn't – he. He couldn't break down the zone, so Hughes was just really packing it in against Zion, basically saying anybody but Zion. And, I mean, if guys are wide open, it was almost like UCF. You got to shoot. So um, Jack White, unfortunately, he uh, that was uh, not his better moment. He was 0 for 10 in that game, and uh, that mentally kind of possibly wore on him the rest of the season. Um, but I, I think that's with... The overreaction to Florida State, we saw it on the opposite side with Syracuse. All of a sudden, Duke's not a good shooting team. Duke was never a good shooting team. It's just everything kind of, it was like the same thing as a perfect storm for Kentucky. It was a perfect storm the other way for uh, for Syracuse. So I think that was like peak overreaction both ways there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that was um, 
starting with the Syracuse game, um, that was kind of that's the first time you saw this team look like freshmen on the court really um they when trey jones went down with that injury they kind of freaked out for a few minutes and didn't know what they were supposed to do and not that i mean i don't know that syracuse played pretty well frank howard played really well and uh chuku played really well which helped them out a ton but duke basically just looked like they were lost for a few minutes after that before they could get back in the game and took 41 42 threes which was the season high um just the, they did everything possible to lose that game and still had trouble g- giving it away because zion and and rj were just that good on that particular day but yeah i think that was um that was just you know a crazy thing that happens when you come out because uh, cam <clears throat> had actually come out for pregame warm-ups had gone through the layup line and all that they go back to the locker room before their kind of last instruction and then they come back out and that's at the point then w- that we find out that cam reddish is not going to play so i guess that's the same time that the coaching staff found out he wasn't going to play that night so that's one guy down and then you lose trey jones immediately your point guard against the zone. Um, not, not that his, he was going to do much damage as a shooter, but what he was going to do was be, going to be able to create a little bit more movement in their zone and be able to get the ball effectively to, to RJ and Zion in the high post and, and just kind of direct traffic out there. So um, I didn't take a whole lot from that loss aside from the fact that um, Zion Williamson played amazing despite the fact that he was running into the teeth of the best zone in America, which is a pretty incredible thing to do. Um, and I, yeah, I think when we left Cameron that night, I think my, my first reaction when I saw the injury was that Trey Jones was going to be out for the rest of the year. Cause um, I, I, my seat was on that side of half court. So I had a pretty good look at it and I was like, yep, they're done. There's no way they're done. They're completely done because they, they lost the one guy that they can't lose that creates all the defensive pressure and all this other stuff. So that was um, that. That's the only the big takeaway there, and it turned out that he was going to be back after missing two games. So things weren't nearly as bad as they originally looked. Um, and then uh, otherwise, from that run, I think against Clemson, that's the first time that we really saw a team completely alter its game plan because of Trey Jones. They they took the ball out of Shelton Mitchell's hands at times at point guard and had other guys bring it up and initiate the offense because they didn't want Trey, uh, Trey Jones harassing him at half court. So um, that was pretty interesting. I, there, there haven't been many times that we've seen one player kind of single-handedly alter the way someone's initiating their offense. So that was pretty impressive. And I think it was after that game that I asked uh, Mike Krzyzewski, his thoughts on Trey as a defender, and he compared him to to Hurley and Duhon and Wojo. So it's pretty pretty high praise for a guy at that point in his career. Um, yeah. Oh, and that was also the the game in which uh, Zion delivered the three sixty. So pretty pretty memorable night for an otherwise unmemorable game. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that that was the game after Trey was unbelievable in uh, against Wake Forest and not even letting Brandon Childress get the ball. I mean, it was so impressive because. Wake was constantly trying to get him the ball, set high screens, get Duke in the pick and roll, and they couldn't even get the ball to Childress. So it wasn't just Trey's on ball. It was his off ball ability to make a difference on defense. So it's possible Clemson saw that and just said, you know what, we're just not even going to deal with that. We're going to initiate offense with somebody else. So I don't know whether one correlated to another, but uh, that was definitely noticeable. Against Syracuse, um, Alex O'Connell, that was the perfect – example of kind of everything he does well and everything that makes you uh, kind of 
scratch your head. He, he, he really buried shots as he does against the zone consistently. He had some pretty atrocious turnovers, and his, his on-ball defense was just, ugh. So, uh, I mean, he let up some really, really easy shots and committed some bad turnovers, but he was able to hit. So, yeah, I mean, up and down. But uh, that was, I would say, Duke with, with Jack White from that point on. It's just really tough because he was such – he could have been such a difference maker for this team, and he still was. He still provided a lot of positive contributions. It's just from that point on, not quite the same as I would say pre Syracuse. Yeah, I forgot that that was uh, that was the 0 for 10 game that that kind of changed the season for him and led to the 0 for 28 stretch I think it was 0 for 27 something like that. But yeah, it was um he was never the same guy again and then he you know when he finally did he came back against Miami later in the season and he played well against Wake Forest and then he gets hurt again uh, in the ACC tournament. So um, yeah, it was, it was unfortunate because Jack is super. He's one of my favorite guys in there in the locker room to talk to, and it wasn't just a matter of of, of injury. It was a matter of uh, he thought that he was doing everything that he needed to do, and he he said he felt good every time the ball left his hand for those twenty eight straight times, and he he just well, for whatever reason just things were not working for him, and I can't imagine what it's like to be in a situation where you're putting in all this extra work, you're staying with staying after practice. I know Mike uh, Krzyzewski said that he was staying with Nate James after practice one day and just getting shots up and he was working harder than he ever had. And it, it just wouldn't go down for him. So it, it was, it was a pretty incredible uh, run of bad luck for him considering how well he had played for the first, uh, first month and a half of the season. Cause you look at his, just in Ken Palm, and that's not even really understanding the full impact of it, but you look at his offensive ratings and it's consistently, he's, he's over 150, he's over 140, and he's got a couple 200s in there for just, you know, he knocked down his shots, he got his rebounds. He didn't take many shots, but he knocked down the ones he took, and he did everything that, that they needed out of that guy coming off the bench. So it was really just a shocking thing to see. Yeah, especially when you only get a shot or two each game. It's like a baseball pinch hitter. If you only get like an at-bat or two um, every game and sometimes none, then it's it's going to it's going to put a lot of pressure on you each time. And I'm sure the basket looked very small. So that's uh, three close games for Duke and three games where free throws played an important part at the end. Gonzaga, they did it to themselves um, with... Uh, with uh, Florida State, Barrett played so well, but he did miss a crucial free throw, which, I mean, they were honestly lucky. I have Florida State, I forget who, somebody just fumbled it right out of bounds. I mean, they had the rebound there, um, leading to Cam's shot. Then uh, Syracuse, Zion had, it was a, uh, I believe it was a uh, tie game, and he had a free throw to not necessarily win it, but to put him up with 15 seconds left. And then Cuse missed on the ensuing possession, which led to overtime. But again, that's just they they had the opportunity right there for it not even to go into overtime, and then once it got into overtime, already dead legs got even worse. I think they took eight shots all from deep, and it was just chucking. Um, next game, Virginia. It was really hyped up, and it was fascinating because both teams really extended their defensive pressure. Duke uh, really switched out on the uh, on the Virginia the the curls and the floppy screens on the baseline. 
And there were some mistakes, but at the same time, I mean, you saw Duke's athleticism just be able to extend out. And Virginia, which is such a great perimeter shooting team, they basically, they relied on uh, kind of ISO versus Duke because Duke was extending out so far. There was nobody really at the rim to help out if Virginia was able to uh, succeed uh, in the uh, isolations one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. But I think Duke was able to take away the 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 perimeter shooting for Virginia, which really did well. And actually, I think Duke even switched to zone at times in the second half. And it's just kind of, they changed it up a lot. But in the second half, I would say that's when the RJ and Zion duo really just took control. Because again, they were shooting too many threes in the first half, even though they were well covered. That's too often what Duke did. In the second half, after a couple minutes, it was pretty much just RJ and Zion just going strong to the hole and even against that pack line which prevents or does a really good job most of the time of preventing you from getting to the center i mean when you have guys that are just as talented as rj and zion are i mean they the most inefficient shots in basketball the mid-range they were on fire from the mid-range and <laughs> it's just it's one of those outliers to duke this year which made you feel that oh there's just no one's gonna be able to stop them at the same time in the two-point win zion went three of nine in the second half from the free throw line, 11 of 22 overall. So there were some struggles there, but that was a really big win. It came, it came at home. Um, the crowd was great, and uh, it just showed Zion and RJ, they were really, really great in their ability just to just be aggressive and not settle. And uh, we, saw, we saw throughout the season where I, I called it second half RJ. I mean, as, as kind of easy a name that is they i mean he would just too often settle for threes in the first half and then the second he would just be dominant and it, it was just unreal how it kept happening it's like i hope coach k is showing him film of this and saying hey why, why don't you try doing this the whole game but i do understand the ability to want to improve the jumper but at the same time i would say maybe play him off ball more get trey more involved because we're already seeing around this time trey jones on offense He's so great in transition in, in terms of his anticipation, his accuracy, his ability to have to kind of push the pace and speed every team up from anything. I mean, whether a make or a miss or a, or a turnover. I mean, the live ball turnovers are obviously the best, but his ability to just outlet to anyone. And with guys leaking out, they had those, those athletes. And they have four guys that really you could give the ball to. And and right away they're going to go, whether Zion, RJ, Trey, or Cam. So, I mean, immediately that saves time if Duke wants to get in transition. But I think Trey being that guy in transition really helped Duke. And unfortunately, that seemed like that was his main role because Coach K kept talking about how Trey has the ability to change whatever he wants. He's a coach on the court, blah, blah, blah. And then you just saw him standing around on offense, like pretty much – every other freshman point guard for Duke not named Kyrie Irving. And it, it was just, I mean, it was tough to see him like that because at least create something. But I, I promised myself that last year with DeVal, that was going to be the last time I would just go crazy about trying to create more action for the point guard because it's just not going to happen. Kay's going to go with his experienced alpha and with, with no experience on this team. In terms of a ball handler, he didn't have a Grayson. It was going to be RJ, and that's just the way it was going to be. And we saw teams start to adjust little by little. Um, that, that yeah, and that was um, that's primarily why Carolina was able to come into Cameron, and they just 
basically backed entirely off of Trey Jones in that game and and dared dared Duke to give it to Trey Jones to beat them and they Duke didn't even give him the ball to beat them so um, yeah that that was kind of interesting to see that's where that started developing you're you're absolutely right about that okay um re- real quick Pittsburgh that's when uh, many remember Louisville as the game where Goldwire made the big impact Pittsburgh I thought was really when he when he came strong and really kind of introduced himself to the world. Because Duke, you can look at the final score and say it wasn't that close. In the first half, they were awful. And that was kind of, you could say you could say possibly a letdown game after Virginia, if you believe in letdown games. Duke just had no energy. They're playing at Pitt. Pitt's not. They're kind of rebuilding right now. And it was I'm sure Kay put out an, an odd energy because he hates playing his assistant coaches, which he's made very clear. And they were going against Capel. And Goldwire was just fantastic that game. So that's the biggest takeaway in a game where they looked really flat. I thought Goldwire was fantastic. Georgia Tech, that game, I'll be honest, that's that and NC State are the only games I actually didn't see this year. I should have rewatched. I was at a wedding. So uh, I know Georgia Tech, they're a great defensive team, slow. Bolden had some sort of injury. Kay uh, used uh, O'Connell more to spread and kind of quick, quick in the pace. Um, the big thing was offensive rebounds, second chance points. Um, in the reverse of how it favored Georgia Tech in the first half, second half favored uh, Duke. Notre Dame, Notre Dame played zone, and Duke, that was their third outlier game. Florida State, then, um, then, um, no, it was their second outlier game, I'm sorry. Uh, th- with uh, Notre Dame, they, they were just, they hit right away from deep, and that was just over to begin with, um, Notre Dame. They lack the talent this year. I think they're going to be better next year. St. John's, um, St. John's, that was kind of a mismatch. But at the same time, still, second half was when they turned it on. Boston College, I talk about them turning it on in the second half. Boston College was up but two at halftime, and Duke won by 25. So, I mean, it just shows when they turn it on, they really turn it on. And that was another one. I believe Boston College played some zone. Uh, next, we have uh, Virginia. That's the third outlier game where – RJ started off five of five from deep. Cam he hit from deep. As weird as it is, the the two teams they prevented each other from uh, hitting from deep. The first game, all of it was at the rim. The second game, they were both on fire. So it was interesting how both teams kind of played the same way. But Duke got just enough in transition in the second half to pull away. But I mean, the offensive efficiency, the two games against Virginia, it was just nuts. I mean, Virginia, I was I actually tweeted at the time like I kind of it's not right of me to say but like i kind of feel bad for bennett he like virginia would have beat any other teams both of these games and duke is just (laughs) that talented and i will say the last game in this kind of grouping louisville louisville they played on the pack line that was another one i mean especially again after virginia we said it's possibly a letdown game duke just looked totally out of their element on the road it was the last of a three-game road trip i believe and it was just awful and then all of a sudden, they did put Goldwire in the second half. And I think it was like eight straight steals at one time. Started off by Goldwire with three straight steals. That was uh, when he paired up with, with um, Trey. And I forgot to say Trey did come back against Georgia Tech. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, that was just wild because I think Louisville kind of peed themselves the same as Gonzaga. I don't want to take away Duke credit from Duke. Because Duke really did well, and Zion, he actually came in with four fouls with something like uh, nine minutes left, and that's when Duke went on their run. And to be as aggressive as he was while still 
um, avoiding fouls. I think that was really impressive. But that was an incredible comeback. I can't remember exactly where they down like twenty one or something. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, it was um, let's see, where was it? It was uh, yeah, Duke was down twenty three with nine minutes to go. Yeah, I mean, in Louisville, as I talked about with Lauren on the ACC, I mean, Louisville's just they they keep doing this, and it has to get in their heads at some point. Like the game before, they were up. 10 on, I think, uh, Syracuse with, with eight minutes left. And, I mean, they've done this a lot, and eventually it's got to mess with your mind. But, I mean, it looked like Louisville had never seen his own press. Like, they were literally, like, <laughs> crapping themselves. But at the same time, again, I don't want to take away the credit from Duke. And Cam, they, they, they just let him go in the last couple minutes, just say, hey, just shoot as much as you want. I think he shot, like, eight threes in the last couple minutes. And... I mean, it was impressive. If nothing else, it was really impressive. They looked completely dead. I was saying, like, with, like, 10 minutes left, you know what? They're going to have these types of games, young team. But hey, they, they pulled it out, and it was at that point I was saying, like, is Duke just trolling us to make it seem like every like everything we think they can't do when it's necessary, they'll be able to do it and pull off these random outliers? So it, it, was, a, it, it was an interesting game there versus Louisville, and you could say that – that was the last time we saw Duke at that kind of ability to force turnovers the entire rest of the year. So that was kind of – that's what – I mean, now that I know what how the year turned out, it's interesting to think back there. Yeah, because at that point in the year, Duke was – I mean, everything that was working for Duke was based on the way that they were pressuring the ball and with Trey Jones applying ball pressure and with basically Cam – and Zion hunting steals on the on the on the wings, and they were both in the top 150, I think, as far as steal rate goes. Um, those two guys were so. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what changed in the way that I, I do think that Duke, Duke backed off some of the pressure, some in that regard, and, and that they were not overplaying the wings as much as they were the rest of the way. But we can get into that more later. Um, yeah, the the two wins over Virginia. I know the, uh, the the second win over Virginia is the time that I said in my mind, okay, this team is going to win the national championship if they are able to. If they're able to go do that in Charlottesville, this is going to be your national champion because not only did did Duke play incredibly well on offense overall, but they were able to to knock down threes. They were they got out in transition a little bit. They were able to force uh, Virginia into, uh, I think it's 14 turnovers in that game, which is just an incredible amount to, to force Virginia into at home. So, um, yeah, that's I, I thought that, that at that point the Duke was probably the favorite to be the national champion. And then, you know, when they went to Louisville on that Tuesday night, it was a Saturday-Tuesday with two on the road and kind of – it's I guess it's kind of an odd road trip going Charlottesville, Durham, Louisville – and, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I mean, Duke's going to lose this game, but I don't think it's really going to change my opinion of them too much because it's just an odd turnaround for them. And then uh, I think one of the most important things that happened of the season uh, that night is that Jordan Goldwire kind of found himself and built built on some of that confidence that really came in handy later when he made he made a big difference in in, uh, in the ACC tournament against Carolina and he played well in the NCAA tournament games that he got into um, and I think that's going to pay off in the long run for Jordan Goldwire I think he's going to be a guy that's going to be a part of the rotation regularly and might be 10 minutes might be 15 
maybe even more on a, a particular matchup, but he's a guy that's going to be able to get in there and cause some havoc, uh, particularly when he's playing alongside Trey Jones. And the, the really funny thing is, you know, I, I brought that up at the ACC tournament to them. I was like, when did you two kind of start figuring out that you could do this in practice together? And they were like, oh, we'd never really practiced together on on the same team defensively. Um, it was just kind of one of those spur-of-the-moment things that they threw together. So I guess sometimes you are uh, you just throw something at a wall and see if it'll work. And on that time, it did. And um, fortunately for Duke, they found a guy that's going to be a contributor to the rotation for the next couple of years now because of it. Yeah, and he definitely has that kind of Wojo-esque, uh, Steve Wojciechowski pest factor, where it's just fun to kind of see him annoy dudes. Obviously, he has to be able to improve the uh, outside shot. I'm guessing he'll work on that a ton in the offseason. But, yeah, I mean, with Pitt, I will stick to my belief that is what started uh, to get him in the good graces of Kay. But at the same time, Trey was out that game. So it wasn't the same as putting them both on the court together. I mean, that just made a huge, huge difference. So it was it was really cool to see um, right there. Um, I would say NC State. They were really they were great offensively. I think at the same time there was kind of it, it wasn't the best game they played. I will grant them they poss- possibly potentially looking ahead to a UNC and they were good enough. It's not to discredit NC State, but they were good enough to just beat NC State at home um, while not playing their best. Um, then NC State obviously Zion blows through the shoe, and that's when I start the next um, the part three of the season. Part three of uh, Syracuse 2 through uh, UNC 2. And so UNC 2 was the last game of the regular season. So that was games uh, 27 through 31, five games. And as great, one thing I haven't said is how great they were not turning the ball over throughout the season with a young team especially. Duke was really impressive of not giving up really – um, allowing other teams to get to get out in transition because Duke's transition D had been up and down during the year. But if you don't turn the ball over, that does help. So at that point in time, the with Zion out, they had to play more half-court offense. Guys couldn't leak out as much. It became a lot harder to get out in transition. All of a sudden, it put more pressure on the half-court offense. So for those five games, they uh, their turnover percentage skyrocketed. It went to 19.2, ranked 249 in the country. Then their uh, forced turnover percentage, it, it went from, they, they, they were actually headed into NC State. It was something like 21.7%. Um, it was just unreal. I think it was like number two behind Texas Tech. They, it turned into, uh, without Zion in those five games, uh, 13.5%, ranked number 320 out of 353 teams. So a team that had been completely not completely, but mostly relying on transition, on and second chance opportunities. I mean, Zion, it, the stats, it's unreal when you look at it in terms of their efficiency combined with the opportunities. They shot by far the most um, second chance attempts at the basket than any other team. Zion had the most, had more than any other player. And that's, I mean, he missed a bunch of games. It's just I mean, the, the, it took away so much of their ability, both offensively and defensively, and just showed how much of a Band-Aid Zion was for Duke. Because, I mean, when I talked about energy earlier on, I also want to make clear uh, at the beginning of the season, I asked, it's just about getting as many attempts as possible in transition, 
whether that's just off anything, um, second chance opportunities and free throws. That's the way energy is going to be shown. That's how it's going to correlate. And they just didn't have any of that. I mean, they didn't have the, set, the second chance opportunities. They weren't able to get out in transition. And the free throw rate, which I'll talk about, it's, it's, it's really weird. This, the last two seasons, it's been by far the lowest free throw rate of uh, the Ken Palm era for Duke. And you can say they shoot too many threes. Yeah, I mean, they both go together to get be more aggressive because I don't understand why they're just going to uh, chuck when you can go to the line. Even if you're not a great free-throw shooting team, it can help. So, yeah, I mean, they couldn't get the free points, and that really turned them into a team that could really, you said, lose to anyone. So uh, in those last games, um, we have... Syracuse, I think Kay did adjust well in that game, getting Trey to flash into the high post more, kind of creating action for him, which I, it was almost like a miracle to me because I just wanted Trey to just not be kind of a standstill guy. I mean, so many point guards at Duke, um, they, they start out as this spot-up shooter, and if you can't shoot, it's, it's troublesome. And you did say North Carolina left him, I think even before at Louisville, that was when I remember having Jordan Sperber on, and he had shown this video of, like, Louisville just left him. And, it, I mean, teams were immediately realizing, you know what, if they're going to play him, especially with Goldwire at the same time, just let him shoot. I mean, might as well sink down on Zion, sink down on RJ, and play the percentages. So Trey, he was going through a tough time. It had to grind on him mentally, and he wasn't getting any high screens. Pick and roll is something I'll discuss. But uh, so there was really no action being created for him. He, he wasn't even being used to screen for others. He was just, they would go down in half court and he would just kind of be there in the corner and nobody's paying attention to him. So almost like lonely. But um, yeah, so, so it was nice to see him get more um, action against Syracuse. And after that, it was uh, Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech, they played really well offensively. That was the worst defensive game of the entire season by far. Uh, Zion, his absence was really felt. And Blackshear was just unbelievable that game against, um, against Javin and Bolden. Uh, Miami, Miami was overmatched. Duke kind of looked like the team who pressed before. And they just put everyone on likes. And Miami didn't have anyone else. Wake Forest, Wake Forest, they play the whole game like they did the first half the first time. And that was a game that Duke could have easily lost. And Jack White, he uh, he committed a turnover stepping on the line at the end of the game. But more than just uh, allowing Wake one more chance, and they missed a shot at the buzzer. But it was more, that was just a game where it's like Duke, they shouldn't be involved in these really down-to-the-wire games with teams that are so much better than, but it just goes to show anything can happen. So, and, it's, and, and that was even at Duke. That wasn't even a road game. And I forget who missed it. Somebody, oh, R.J. Barrett missed a bunch of free throws at the end of there. So another close game, another bunch of missed free throws towards the end. He missed his last five, including a bunch inside two minutes. North Carolina, North Carolina, Duke played as well as they could in the first half, but in the second half, they kind of fell off, and it just goes to show they just didn't have the horses anymore without Zion and Cam against Virginia Tech in that's North Carolina, the regular season finale. He just shows the ability uh, to make you salivate in terms of his potential. He would have these amazing first halves and then vanish in the second and Duke wouldn't have any second score. So RJ, 
he stepped up. Like, Virginia Tech, I think he even had the flu that game. And he was still able to step up and be really fantastic. But it was just a lot on his shoulders. Syracuse, I think he had a triple-double. And it was just, he had to do everything at that point. I mean, Jack White couldn't hit shots. And Kay was kind of in and out with O'Connell at times. But it was, it was tough. I think the last thing before I'll hand it to you, the, the one underrated factor, even right away there, was Javin Deloria. Because Javin, at the beginning of the season, you just couldn't trust him at all. He would get on the court and immediately foul 25 times. I mean, his foul rate was just absurd. You couldn't trust him to be there. It was kind of funny in Canada. You heard these rumors that, like, Javin, he's going to be able to to shoot from outside. That never even, like, I never even saw a hint of that. So that was kind of funny. But uh, his defense was fantastic, and he showed... So much energy, the same type of jab and energy everyone loved, but without committing as many stupid fouls. There was, I'm not saying he never fouled, but you could trust him so much more. And I think he became vital to Duke, um, especially once Bolden went down uh, in the North Carolina game. But I think Javin, even before that, when Zion went out, I think his presence really made a huge difference. And at that point in time... A lot of people were really excited about Kay going deep into his bench and saying, hey, they can, we're going to see this in the NCAA tournament. They, Kay can just go to anyone. I'm like, I don't know, man, maybe. But history says definitely not. And uh, history was proven correct. But it, it, it was nice to see that there were the options were there and different guys had stepped up throughout the year. So that's, that's how I uh, saw things toward, at the end of the regular season. Yeah, that um, I think the the interesting, the most interesting game out of that group was the Syracuse game right after the loss of Zion, and everybody's like, "All right, well, how is Duke going to react to? <laughs> how is Duke going to come back from this?" And uh, not only is, is Zion out, but uh, Jack White gets a DNP for the first time all year, which is, I mean, it's pretty shocking to me. I, I thought, that, you know, Jack White had not played well, but just I'm not sure what what there was if there was a justification in sitting him maybe there was maybe there wasn't but i found that odd and then joey baker plays and the red shirt is gone and ends up playing just over 20 minutes for the season um and will be a sophomore next year instead of a freshman which hey whatever um i don't think it really matters for a guy that's considered a he came in as a top he would have been a top 30 recruit coming in this year so maybe he's going to be in the nba at that time period anyway but um that was interesting i know uh, Alex O'Connell played really well offensively over that little stretch there against Syracuse and Virginia Tech, and um, he wasn't he wasn't bad at North Carolina at the end. And I think Javon Deloria really came on and played the best basketball of his career, um, starting then and and all the way into to the Elite Eight when he had his first career uh, double double, and he was really strong with um, as a rebounder, and it looked like he kind of figured out, you know, just that thing that, that Wendell Carter needed to figure out last year is that if you are a man of, of a certain size, you do not need to play defense with your hands. So um, that, that finally worked out for him there in that end. And I mean, you have to love his game as far as athleticism and energy and um, just kind of doing the little things. I, I don't think he's ever going to develop anything uh, offensively beyond the free throw line or anything like that. But he can be a guy that's going to consistently put the ball in the bucket when he gets it down low. He's going to get rebounds and he's going to block shots and he's going to make the right play and he's not going to look for, for bad jumpers or anything like that because he, he knows his game. And I think knowing's half the battle when you're, when you're, you've got a limited skill set offensively. So 
Um, and then, you know, going to Carolina there at the end of the year. Well, let me just um, ask real quick. Do you think it's almost yeah. unfair to compare Javin, maybe, I don't know if rise is the right word, but his impact kind of similar to uh, Emil Jefferson in 2015? Yeah, yeah. I think it's, uh, it's uh, that's not unfair. Is, uh, he, you know... It, it, it takes a lot of different guys in these situations. And, you know, as I think we were talking a little bit about the experience factor and upperclassmen and all that. And everybody talks about the freshmen that were a part of Duke's 2015 national championship team. But there was also Emil Jefferson that, that played a major role on that team. So uh, they weren't without a, a couple of older guys on that team. And that's kind of how uh, Javin was for this team. And that's how he's going to be next season when, I mean, my assumption is that he is going to be a starter uh, probably right there alongside of uh, Vernon Carey, depending on how – if Matthew Hurt decides to come to Durham and how they fit in the lineup together. But, I mean, Javin, if he picks up where he left off, I mean, you, you can't ask for more than that from, from a guy in, in his role. We haven't heard anything about Bolden yet, right? No, we haven't, um, which is a little surprising to me. I think that um, – my thought is that he would – test the draft waters i think i mean you'd be you'd be smart to do that in those situations so i would assume that at some point we're going to hear that he's going to test the draft process and then most likely come back to school but um i'd, I'd say you, you have to if you're a junior with any aspiration to play in pro basketball at this point i don't see why everyone with with who even has a thought about the draft if they're allowed i don't see why they wouldn't go to the combine like what is how could that hurt you that's what i don't understand so it's odd to me that anybody wouldn't. So, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, uh, so we'll see what happens with him. Um, yeah, in terms of Emil Jefferson, uh, yeah, I mean, he started out the season, I believe, as the starter. And he actually came off the bench, still got huge minutes. But for Matt Jones, who uh, kind of made Duke a little smaller, Justice Winslow initiated the offense more. And, I mean, Matt Jones, he was huge. I mean, he hit monster threes against uh, Gonzaga in the Elite Eight. A lot of people don't remember that, but yeah, the seniors, I mean, it wasn't just Quinn Cook, and I didn't mean to say seniors, uh, upperclassmen. It, Quinn Cook was the senior, but uh, yeah, Matt Jones was huge um, for there as well. Um, okay, so Zion, he comes back against Syracuse, uh, quarterfinal of the uh, ACC tournament, and I mean, the first couple minutes are unlike anything anybody's ever seen, um, or at least anything I've ever seen. It's It was unreal. Everything that seemed to be a weakness somehow turned immediately into a strength, and it's ironic that it was kind of the first couple of minutes of uh, the first Syracuse matchup with Trey when Duke was forcing a bunch of turnovers. It almost seemed like that with now Zion. It kind of continued on with the third matchup against Syracuse, and it was unbelievable. I, I think he, was, he had scored 21 Shot nine of nine from the field in the first half, just dominated in every way. Like four offensive rebounds, blocks, steals, everything. The only, the only problem, I mean, the only weakness, I guess you could say, he was like two of seven from the free throw line, but he was just on another level. And yet at the same time, Duke was, they were completely relying on him. It was almost like, I mean, this is unfair to say Jordan watching because he's not Michael Jordan, but it was it, like Duke was just kind of standing around watching him, and the half-court offense was really bad. They were turning it over, and it was just pretty much Zion was doing his thing, getting all the highlights. But after those, uh, I think they had, they forced nine turnovers in the first 11 and a half minutes, 
And then it's it slowed down and Cuse they had chances to even win it. And really from that point on, Duke never forced turnovers the rest of the season in remotely the way they had. So I mean after those first couple minutes against Syracuse, it was odd. It's like I, I I've been trying to figure out what happened. I think it's just symbiotic in terms of being forced to run more half court offense. It kind of took away the energy in, in, in a in a way where or not being able to create turnovers took away energy from the offense and vice versa. So otherwise, I can't quite understand what exactly happened with the defense being able to force unable to force turnovers, especially live ball or even push pace. I mean, Trey Jones, his steals went to nothing. Cam Reddish, his steals went to nothing. And it's more than just what do these stats show. It's they, they, they didn't look – they weren't – I don't know. The energy was was down a little bit, and they were still really locking down on defense, which was nice to see. I mean, but still, I think they started to uh, press more, and I don't mean press in terms of full court. I mean press in terms of kind of uh, press uh, the um, – feel more pressure. Oh, sorry. They feel more pressure. And uh, when, when they would really try to extend out their pressure, then other teams could go right over. And that's when they started allowing other teams to shoot well from three, like uh, UCF, North Dakota State, teams that would just beat that uh, extended pressure and then have a guy just standing there waiting with an open three. So it was odd seeing other teams shoot well from deep against Duke because the three-point defense – had been one of, if not their biggest strength of the season. So they weren't able to force turnovers. The offensive rebounding was okay, nothing special. Weren't getting to the free throw line. And, yeah, I mean, it turned Duke into a half-court team. And Duke was never going to succeed as a half-court team. They could have outliers, which they would look impressive every once in a while. But this team needed to get out and run. And against uh, against North Dakota State, um, they just – the most shocking thing was they couldn't even get offensive rebounds against a small team. They played at the other team's pace. They'd always been able to force other teams to play at their pace. And I might have – I probably shouldn't have skipped ahead of uh, North Carolina and Florida State in the ACC tournament. North Carolina kind of repeated Syracuse. A um, lot of turnovers early, kind of settled down. Game slowed down in the second half. Missed a, missed a free throw. And I think R.J. Barrett did that time, was able to escape – I, th- I think uh, Zion, he, he hit the game winner. And, I mean, it's just the, the difference of Zion. I mean, that was the difference. They lost to North Carolina two times in a row. North Carolina really sped up the game, and then Duke slowed it down, which was kind of interesting uh, with Duke, who the whole season had been speeding teams up. But North Carolina, they were the fastest team or one of the fastest teams in the country. So that played to Duke's favor a little more and allowed Zion to really control action inside. He got the fifth foul on Garrison Brooks late and took control there. Um, and uh, Florida State, that was the same thing. Grinder, where Duke turned it over too much too early, pulled away in the second half. Florida State actually did come back, but Trey Jones hit a bunch of free throws, and that like that made me feel comfortable. Just get the ball to Trey Jones at the end of the game if you need just free throws, and hopefully that will turn out better. Um, UCF, Trey Jones, I think, missed the free throw there. Is either UCF or Virginia Tech. But either way, I mean, when you're playing with fire that many times, the stat is the uh, seven until Michigan State. After Gonzaga, there were seven games decided by one or two points, and Duke won all of them. And in all of them, they missed a, a clutch free throw, if not more. 
Uh, Zion, uh, three games that happened. RJ, three games that happened. And Trey, uh, one game that happened. And UCF, you could very easily make the case they outplayed Duke. Virginia Tech, absolutely. Virginia Tech, I mean, the unforced turnovers were just odd and just missing all kinds of shots close in. Both of those teams missed very, very makeable shots um, that could have uh, won the game for UCF, could have sent it into overtime for Virginia Tech. And it just it felt very fortunate. And all the stats were trending the opposite way. Duke was, I mean, they, they were just a team that was kind of just surviving and advancing, which is all you can try to do in the, in the NCAA tournament. But, man, this was not even close to the team everyone, many thought against Kentucky. I didn't. But I think at that point, to try to figure out what happened, it's possible that teams just kind of, I mean, this isn't, I'm not trying to be too harsh on Cam, but they, they, they didn't have those three offensive weapons that many thought. Because when Cam would hit a shot against Kentucky, you could see Kentucky just react extremely and make adjustments. And those uh, couple other games, well, Virginia and Florida State, I mean, you saw the way he can, he was the X factor, but it was just so few and far between that I think teams were just willing to live with it and just get your ass back in transition. Do not allow Duke to run on you and just make sure to prevent every possibility of them running on you. And then, and that was it. I don't think they quite, it's not like they left Cam open, but I think they just let him have a little space because when he had space, a lot of times he would just barrel into guys. It didn't. It seems like he plays at one speed, and he needs to adjust. And once the game slows down, who knows? Um, but right now he plays at one pace and needs to diversify, like Wu Tang Financial. I've said the whole year, and it really hurt Duke um, at, at times. And I think that might have played into the fact that Duke wasn't able to run as much. And then Michigan State. I mean, Michigan State was ranked three three forty four in the country in uh, forced turnover percentage. And Duke turned, Duke turned it over 25% of the time against them. And Michigan State was already a team. They ran off everything. That's what made Michigan State different than the Michigan State teams of the past. Because Michigan State never turned you over much. But before, they were just kind of relying on half-court offense. And now, they, with Cassius Winston, they were just running off everything um, besides turnovers. So now Duke was allowing them to run off turnovers as well. And it's just unbelievable how Duke was able to still be close just based on pure talent even though Michigan State, they outplayed them. And I think Duke's defense was fantastic, especially, as I said earlier, with the hedging by Bolden and Delorier. Um, and it's it's sadly ironic how the game-winning shot by Goins actually came on a miscommunication with Trey and Zion, where they would switch everything, and Zion assumed he, would, he was going to be taking Cassius Winston, so he backed off. And then Trey also went with Winston, allowing Goins a wide-open shot. RJ took the uh, took that final um, shot. He got to the free-throw line, and another sick irony, his uh, after missing the first, his second, which he tried to miss, didn't happen. So, I mean, it, when you play with fire, you could say, if only this play had gone differently. Hey, the refs missed this call. Or you could nitpick a lot of stuff. But at the end of the season, I mean, I remember thinking back to last year against uh, Kansas, and I was it really upset me um, to kind of feel like they let opportunities slip away. I didn't get that feeling against uh, with this team. So I think they was just it was heading in that direction. I think we've got to appreciate how far they got. 
I mean, they, and I, I would say they were very talented, but they never quite lived up to what their potential could have been. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. Um, it was never the sum of the parts was never greater than the the talent individually, which was kind of the thing. And there's a lot of different. Even there's there could be a lot of different reasons for that. It could be that um, R.J. Barrett took the amount of shots that he took uh, as compared to Zion Williamson. Could be that Trey Jones never got as involved in the offense as he could have been and showed that he was capable of at times, especially when he started knocking down the mid-range shots consistently in the middle of the se- or kind of toward the end of the ACC season, which I thought was going to be kind of important for the way that they they could space things out a little bit more because, I mean, to that point, I mean, we'd never seen anybody drop down and pack the lane like uh, like UCF did. And um, it, it, it's not that Trey Jones was clearly a good offensive player. There's a reason he was the, the EYBL's offensive player of the year his junior season, so his last year on the, the Nike AAU circuit. I mean, there's some pretty good players on there. So he can score the basketball. He can get to the basket. But for for whatever reason, those opportunities never kind of came his way this year, mostly because those opportunities were built on, on getting to the basket. And, A, if you've got R.J. Barrett and you've got Zion Williamson that can get to the basket too, maybe maybe those are better options. But anyway, point being, just kind of looking back over that little bit of uh, the schedule, um, th- those three nights in Charlotte are among the most – incredible nights of basketball that that i've gotten to cover i know my colleague ed harden who's been doing this for a very long time at, at the news and record said the duke carolina of acc semifinal is the best game he's ever seen live really? um yeah which um it was an enjoyable game i i haven't officially ranked it in my my grand uh my grand rankings but it, it's right up there with the the grades i was at the kentucky unc regional final when luke may hit the shot a few years ago pretty good game so it's right up there with that um and just the energy in, in the building those nights watching zion kind of come back from his injury and suddenly not only is he coming back from his injury i think there was kind of like a feeling among i, I know several people would ask they're like what do you think is going to happen i'm like oh, i'm sure he'll play like 20 minutes against syracuse and you know they'll just try to get his feet wet try to get out of there and and try to go full speed with him against carolina and he came out of the gate just better than he had ever looked all year and it was crazy so you know i think everybody left charlotte with the feeling that hey this is a flawed team but also it's such a talented team that it's going to be able to overcome it's going to be able to overcome the stuff and the the draw in the NCAA tournament isn't bad and there there's not much of a good reason this team shouldn't end up in minneapolis so and then we saw just the, the kind of concerns that that lingered all year for this Duke team popped up in those first two NCAA tournament games in Columbia where Duke comes out of the gate and shoots a bunch of threes before the first media timeout in both games. And it's like it's like something happened every single time. It's like they would come out, shoot a ton of threes for the first five minutes of a game, and then they would get to, to the first timeout and somebody would just be like, hey, what are you guys doing over there? So um, – that always got corrected, and then, you know, kind of after after the UCF game, you felt like either, depending on how you wanted to look at it, this this was either a team living on borrowed time, or this is a team that just ran into the most unique of challenges and had to overcome it, and they had kind of gotten their their one game in the tournament out of the way before they were going to get to the Final Four. And then, you know, 
depending on what you think of those first two games, you kind of want to see them come out and blow somebody out in the Sweet 16 if, if you're still holding on to that national championship dream. And that doesn't materialize against a really good Virginia Tech team that just kind of has their number and knows how to play well against them. And it, there were times in the Michigan State game where it looked like Duke was on the verge of pulling away and playing really well in that game, and then it just never really materialized. So I think that's kind of it's kind of a microcosm of the season was they, they looked like they were on the verge quite a number of times, but it never really came together. And, and that's kind of how the year ended, and it ended with – bad free throw shooting and just one mistake here, one mistake there. And yeah, I think uh, I'm, I'm in agreement with what you said that uh, as far as there were so many missed opportunities against Kansas last year, that that could have left a sour taste for some Duke fans. But this year you kind of felt like, you know, they just ran into a team that was better than them on a particular day. And they were lucky to even get to that point after surviving what they did against UCF and against Virginia Tech. Yeah, I would say the last uh, last point I want to make in terms of, I guess, this uh, first part going through the season is I think Javin Delorier, I think we saw a lot of good things. I, I didn't even mention that Bolden, he did miss the ACC. Wait, no, he came back and – wait, he missed the ACC tournament, came back in the NCAA tournament, and uh, rotated with Javin. Both of them provided uh, – um, important minutes at times. It, this, there was still an issue. I mean, they could not. Either one of them couldn't handle Kerry Blackshear. Like Virginia Tech, as small as they are, they out rebounded. They got so many off rebound, offensive rebounds against Duke. Both matchups this season is kind of crazy. Um, and the first time you're like, oh, if Zion was there, it wouldn't be like that. And then Zion was there, and it still was like that. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, Virginia Tech was just a brutal matchup because, as Kay said, positionless basketball, that was their whole team. But, uh, I mean, the steal percentage, the uh, turnover percentage, a lot of people could say, oh, Zion, if, if Duke had had – a lot of them probably came when Zion was out. No. They're like uh, Some of those lowest ones were during the NCAA tournament and the ACC tournament. And, again, the only reason why Syracuse, the quarterfinal of the ACC tournament, isn't included in there is because of those first couple minutes. I mean, they really did not turn teams over at all in the ACC tournament and the NCAA tournament. So the thing that they were able to do best, get out in space, get that energy – they lost, and they had to be a half-court team. Once they became a half-court team, they were above average, but they were just a talented bunch of guys on the court, not quite as much of a team as you would have hoped at that point. And, uh, yeah, I, I think with Goldwire, we also saw him. You know what? I, we'll talk about this more, um, just kind of topics. But that really that concludes the first part of uh, the season in review with Duke's season, losing to Michigan State in that uh, final game. Kenny Goins, I, I know it's not going to make anyone uh, get anyone with the good feels with this, but Kenny Goins, he is a, uh, I think he was like a redshirt senior. And, I mean, he had, he had a huge shot. He walked on to Michigan State. So if you can just take a little bit of a step away, it was a cool moment for them. Izzo, he hadn't been able to beat Kay in a while. It was uh, in a while. Um, it was once. It was, he was 1-11. So he pulled it off. As as brutal as it is, I think to, they were one victory away from the Final Four, second straight year. Tough loss. And you just have to accept they did it to themselves. You play with fire at some point in time, you will get burned. So that could yes. Two years in a row, they're one shot away from the Final Four, and I mean that's just kind of, kind of the nature of it. It's 
I mean, does that like I wrote in my Virginia winning the national championship story? Does does one shot going in or out make a difference between whether Tony Bennett has a is a great coach and Virginia is a great program? No, I mean it's, Duke is there. They are what they are based on whether that shot went in. And although I'm sure there's quite a, quite a few fans that that don't agree with that or don't really enjoy that feeling. I mean, it is what it is. It's still a great season. Yep, and I am all about the season. Obviously, some may just use the tournament as a referendum on everything, but I think it was fun to just kind of go back and kind of, not necessarily reminisce, but go go through thoughts at the time in terms of how things were going. Because sometimes we forget, like Jack White against uh, Texas Tech, how amazing he was that game and could have been for Duke if it kept going. But that, that concludes part one. So I will be talking to everyone part two.